You are listening to episode two of the Homegrown Farmhouse podcast. Today we're going to talk a little bit about why we chose sheep and particularly Dorper sheep as our agricultural exempt animal in order to pay less taxes on the land we own. Hey there, I'm Laura, the voice and face behind Laura Stewart blog and YouTube channel. We are a family of three learning how to homestead on our eight acre farm in the heart of Texas. Follow along as we share our journeys in homesteading, farmhouse restoration, cooking from scratch, sheep raising, and so much more. I think first we need to cover a little bit about agricultural exemptions. Now, I can't tell you that I'm the most knowledgeable person in regards to this, but I can tell you that the county that we currently reside in within Texas, I did call and get some rules and stipulations. Just make sure that you have to know how many acres you have, how many animals of a particular breed per acre, and what it is exactly that they're looking for. Where we are at... It has to be the land or the property has to have been running an agricultural business for the five of the last seven years. And if you're new to the area or if you're just buying a house in a county with land and you want to know if it's agriculturally exempt, you obviously need to ask that up front. The other thing is if if the person that you purchased the home from was running an ag business for any of those years, depending upon what the stipulations are per county, and you can get proof of that, many times you can backdate the agricultural exemption. Therefore, you receive the exemption sooner. Again, there's a whole lot to that, and I won't necessarily go into it. I just know for our particular case, it has to be running an agricultural business the previous five of the last seven years, and any of those five of the last seven years. The people that owned the property before us were not running an ag exemption business, so there was nothing that I could do with that. I also checked with the local parks and wildlife because I do know that with agricultural exemptions, you can take a temporary break and then do something like bees or feeding birds or whatever it is that they request you to do. But in order to do that, you have to have already had an agricultural exemption. So with this exemption, typically what happens once you receive it and once you've done the work up into the whatever your county stipulates, you get quite a bit of a tax break or tax relief on paying taxes for your property. So our little farm is eight acres and right now we pay property tax um, and a pretty high amount for the county that we're in and that's obviously because of the market is going to continue to go up and you pay taxes based on the estimated value of that. So once you run an ag exemption business, you get quite a bit of a discount on those taxes. So it just helps you, especially if, like I said, the property taxes continue to skyrocket. It makes it very expensive to live in a house that you've lived in for a few years when they start to raise those prices. Um, So for us, Getting around to the sheep, we looked at all forms of livestock with agricultural exemption. We are new, like I said in the previous podcast, my husband was raised around horses and cattle, and me, no livestock, just sheeps and sheeps, just cats and dogs, birds, that sort of thing. 
So all of this was relatively new. We had never owned donkeys. We had never owned goats. We had never owned sheep, chickens, pigs, none of that. So I talked to quite a few local farmers and ranchers just to kind of get their take. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, everybody's going to have differing opinions on what species, what breed, how many to run, how to run it. So you're going to get a whole lot of conflicting information. And honestly, in your particular situation, it's probably going to be like us, where it's just a lot of trial and error. Initially, we had settled on goats. And we had met a person that raised goats for many years and eventually switched over to sheep. And when she explained to me why she did that and the benefits of doing that, we actually decided, okay, so we're not going to get goats. We're going to go with sheep. Then we started researching sheep. The sheep that we have on our property are called dorpers, and dorpers are a hair sheep versus a wool sheep. The benefit there is that they actually, for the most part, shed their coat themselves. It's not something that you have to go out and shear. Living in Texas, the winters here um, are pretty mild, but you do have spurts of time where it gets super cold. And then obviously in the heat of the summer, it can get up to 115 degrees, 110 degrees on a really hot day here in Texas, particularly in August. These sheep were bred, I believe in South Africa, and they are a meat sheep. And they were bred because they gain weight quickly. They are a pretty hardy stock. You don't typically have to shear them. And for the most part, they're pretty healthy. I think with any breed that you run, I particularly don't buy registered or verify without a shadow of a doubt that they are purebred. If you're going to be selling your sheep or showing your sheep beyond barn sales, then obviously that's something that you want to consider. I've just found through my years of vet experience, vet tech experience and working with animals that typically the more purebred an animal is or the more registered an animal is, the more health problems you end up having. And I just wanted to make sure that we kind of eased into this. So I looked around, talked to a lot of breeders, and a lady named Sherry is a Dorper breeder. She runs about 140 head. She's one small town over from us, and she's kind of been my mentor. She definitely even after three years, is always available for me to ask questions and verify. And if there's something new, she helps me. And I keep a little book of all of what we're doing so that every season I can go back and reference that and not have to text her 14 times a week like I did in the beginning. Um, Dorper sheep, our sheep, have been, knock on wood, I have not had very many issues at all. We do warm them, which is an oral, it's called an oral drench. We do warm them four times a year typically and this is just to make sure obviously that they don't get worms and that they stay healthy. We also give a CDT vaccine, tetanus vaccine because that's something that you need to worry about with this breed as well. The type of warmer that we give changes based on the seasons. You just want to kind of make sure that you're getting a full spectrum and the only time that I haven't wormed some of the sheep at the same time as the other, obviously, is if they were pregnant. We don't keep a ram on the property. Um, when we initially bought them, she had already bred them. And I believe we bought five initially. And I think three of those five had babies the first season, lambing season here. Then we got a ram from 
an individual that was selling him. And because of my daughter, we had to make sure, we tried to make sure that any animal that we bring on the property is somewhat hand tame. I learned a lesson the hard way that hand-tamed and bottle-fed rams are actually more dangerous than those that aren't because he's not scared of humans. And when we initially brought him on the property, he was so easygoing. And I'm guessing that when it came time to breed, when the girls were letting him know that it was time to breed, he just got very protective. And unfortunately, my backside and my thighs paid the price one day when I was outside filling their water troughs having no idea that he was about to attack me. So I went from loving on this animal and wanting to keep him forever to saying, nope, you got to go. Just for the safety of, like I said, my daughter and for the fact that he would not allow me in the pens to throw feed. So we will be, you can rent rams. Um, Probably what we will do is just purchase rams for a particular amount of time and then turn around and resell them. You can absolutely sell the individuals. Typically what we do is we have kept the ewes that have been born here and then we sell the rams. You don't want to crossbreed, obviously, the rams that are born into your flock back into your flock. Some people have said to do one generation is fine. I don't particularly do it. I think you're borrowing trouble doing so, my personal opinion. Um, But we do call what's banding our rams um, and that's just a form of castration to put it bluntly we use a rubber band versus a scalpel or a knife and I feel like that is just easier long term you risk less infection and if something happens where we haven't sold them when they're of breeding age I can make sure that there's no way those rams are going to impregnate the ewes that I currently have So for us to receive the ag exemption with the amount of acreage we have, I believe it's we have to run a minimal of five to eight head constantly. So we've only sold one of our original ewes that came here. She was just kind of difficult. And so we took her to market with her son after she birthed the first year. We currently have, I believe, six. I'll have to go out there and look because we've sold some. We have currently have six out there. And one of which is probably too old to breed. So this is where it gets difficult. When you're running a very small herd, very small flock, you obviously get very attached versus if you're running like my friend Sherry, 140 head, you're not going to name all of them and get attached to them where these guys become almost pets. But there's issues with that when you're trying to run an agriculture exemption. I have a very old ewe out there whose name is Maybelline. She is the kind of soul ever born on this earth, but she is, it it would be unhealthy for her to breed at this point. So now we face the difficult decision of what to do because the ram needs to free breed with our herd. I don't want her around that, but I can't pull her away and not have anybody with her either as they're like a herd animal. So that's something that we're considering. I have made many, many, many mistakes walking down this road doing lots of research, talking to others. The benefit of sheep versus goats, and I don't think I mentioned this before, is also sheep don't tend to chew on stuff and destroy the property. They also don't test the boundaries. Now, that being said, because they play follow the leader, if one sheep gets through the fence, chances are every single one of them is going to because they'll follow each other. So 
so many benefits for us to raise sheep versus goats. And when we take them to the barn sale, I believe around four months is when the rams that are born here typically go to the barn sale. That was also hard for me at first, just because being the animal lover that I am and passionate about animal rescue, it's very hard to separate those two. A lot of times people say it gets easier or if you were born into it and it's something you did regularly, it wouldn't be as difficult. I don't, I don't think that's particularly the case, but for me, it's going to be hard every single time. Before you decide to raise livestock, obviously consider where you live because you have to feed multiple times a day. You have to refill water. You have health issues when the it is lambing season. I pretty much have to check them all the time. I know a lot of breeders don't do that, but again, being who I am, I just worry that if something goes wrong during the delivery and I'm not there, oftentimes not only can the lamb perish, but so can the mom um, in, in delivery. So I just want to make sure that I'm available as much as I can be for them during lambing season. And that in and of itself is stressful um, to keep up with. And it's a lot to learn initially about how to help them, when to help them, what happens after you've helped them. And we can go over that in an additional podcast. But for us, the choice for sheep was pretty clear. And right now, we're, we're, we're going to attempt to run a larger flock, but we have our property is split in two. So it's four acres and then there's an easement to our neighbor that lives at the back of our property. And then there's four acres on the other side. And because it's heavily wooded, the area around where we live, obviously you worry about predators. We did have some herd protection. Again, that's a podcast for another time. We initially had donkeys and then we switched to dogs and that became an issue itself as well. So we are currently in the state of learning what's going to work best for us for herd protection, but that's something that I definitely recommend that you research and kind of have under your belt before you decide to buy an agricultural animal for the safety of you, for the sanity of you, and obviously for the safety of your animals. So we did end up with Dorpers. I have had to share them once, and it's only because they kind of got a little bit matted and the temperature was supposed to get so hot for so long. I did worry about their safety. The other thing to consider prior to getting your animals is your fencing situation as well as their protection. So we have a little shed that we built for them that can be enclosed. It's like a tiny little barn. And anytime it's hailing or heavy rain or extremely cold, doesn't snow here very often, it's more sleet, but we have that set up for them to go in. There is a heat lamp I can turn on and off, and then we have bedding in there constantly. Same thing, we have a lean-to next to the house, so if for any reason they need somewhere to go quickly, they can go in there as well. It's just like a tiny little, almost half shed is, is what it is. I will tell you, I don't know why, but most of the time, they're not very smart. So when it's raining, you'll look out there and they'll be all huddled together under the tiniest little tree, Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown Christmas tree you've ever seen, <laughs> thinking, okay, you guys, I built you a shelter, go in there. And occasionally they will. But again, that's something that I've learned over the years is if it's bad enough, if it's cold enough, if they're wet enough, they'll go in there. Um, and initially I would go outside in the rain, yes, in the rain, and run in the shed and call them in there and sit with them. 
until the rain was gone because I thought, oh, they don't know what to do. No, they know what to do. Um, They're just not that smart. So again, all stuff that you will learn along the way. And it just depends on how many you're raising, how you're raising them. I would eventually like to get a larger flock, like I said, that will be coming in the future. But for now, what we're running is just to get the agricultural exemption for the land that we're running the animals on. Also verify with your county. We talked to the guy that runs this part of the taxes that he would consider the purchase of our fence material or potentially our tractor purchase as the start date for the ag exemption. Because you can argue that if you move to a property that doesn't have fencing like we did, or that the land is not properly set up or ready for your agricultural animals, many times they will include you preparing the property for them as the start date. Just verify that. And again, verify how many animals that you're going to need based on the acreage that you are buying or that you have. And I think that kind of pretty much covers the basics and goes over why we chose Dorper sheep versus goats or any other farm animal. Obviously, chickens are not a ag animal. And I think at one point somebody said that pigs were not an ag animal. I don't see how that's true, but I know that horses, unless you're breeding um, and selling, just owning horses for riding, personal horses for riding and, and donkeys, those are not considered ag animals either. So you are kind of limited on what you can use for your ag, especially in the county that we're in. I don't know what it's like where you reside but definitely verify that. And keep in mind when you're buying a property that your taxes based on your acreage are going to be pretty astronomical unless you have that ag exemption in place. So when you're looking for your farms or your ranches or even a little plot of land, see what the taxes are like in that county and then see if it is potentially already on an ag exemption. So if the people that had own this property prior to us had it on an ag exemption, then we would, as long as we were maintaining that business or that form of ag exemption, it would just automatically roll over into us. That might be an extra form that you have to file. We obviously didn't have to do that because that wasn't unfortunately the case on the land that we bought. I do love my Dorpers. I do think that based on getting to know other farmers and ranchers in the area that raise different animals. I think that they're pretty self-sufficient. You definitely, like I said, have to keep up with their worming and their vaccinations. And then, of course, during lambing season, I do give them some vitamins and some additional minerals. And the feed that I buy them is pretty pure. And we do drive about an hour and a half a couple times a year to load up on the feed. But I think that those small things that you can do along the way are definitely going to make the biggest difference in not having health issues in the long run. So none of our Dorpers, I don't believe, are purebred. None of them are registered. My daughter is interested in getting into showing the sheep now that she's been around them and we've taken her to a couple of shows. Once that happens, we will most likely be looking at breeding registered and breeding purebred. It wasn't ever on my radar to do so just because of the potential health issues and the cost. But if that's what she wants to do, I'm the mom that supports it. So we're going to give it a shot. 
I do think that we are going to allow her to walk Maybelline, our little old lady sheep, in the ring at a couple of the competitions prior to deciding if that's something that we want to take on with her. If you have any additional questions about the Dorper sheep, about why we chose them, any questions about purchasing them or treating them, I will absolutely be here to answer them to the best of my ability. We will go deeper into that in future podcasts, but I just wanted to cover, I know that I talked about in the first podcast that we did have sheep and a little bit about agricultural exemption. So I wanted to cover some of that today, and I hope that that better explains to you guys how we ended up on Dorper sheep. I hope that you guys are having an amazing day. Thanks so much for hanging out with me, and I can't wait to see you in the next one. You are listening to episode three of the Homegrown Farmhouse podcast. Today, I want to talk a little bit about chickens, particularly raising chickens for your farm fresh eggs. I recently did a blog post and YouTube video covering how to store them freshly and how I personally store them and whether or not you want to sell them. So you can hop on over to Laura Stewart blog um, on my blog or on the YouTube channel and learn all about that. And today we're going to talk more about the chickens themselves. Today I want to cover some things that I've learned while raising chickens for fresh eggs. If you're interested in how I store those and keep those fresh in a safe way, I did a YouTube video as well as a blog post about that over at Laura Stewart blog. So you can check those out if you want to learn more. But today I wanted to more talk about the chickens themselves and kind of how I raise them. When I initially decided that I wanted to have farm fresh eggs, um, there were a few things obviously that needed to happen and be in place. One, I had to do a little bit of research on how to raise them from a chick to adulthood. I don't do any of the hatching here on the farm, so we don't have a rooster. I don't have any interest in doing that at the moment. Once some other stuff gets taken care of on the farm, that may be something that I venture into. But for now, um, we just have the small little flock or, that we have. So I started out with six. We're down to five. Um, unfortunately, one had to be put down. Another podcast, we'll talk about that. Um, but when I initially started, I did, like I said, did some research on how to raise them from chicks. So we had to get a heat lamp and bedding and feed and vitamins. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that um, don't do the things that I did. And maybe I won't go to the extreme on future chicks that we order or that we purchase. I tend to be a little bit more passionate about animal care and keeping them as pets versus farm animals, which is a hard lesson I'm learning along the way. I did that with the sheep as well, and some days I still do that. So when we went to Tractor Supply initially to buy the supplies, I believe it was during, I think what they call chick season, I forget the specific name for it, obviously in the spring, and when we walked in, they had all kinds of chicks set up. I knew nothing about breeds. I knew nothing about 
how to care for them other than the heat lamp and the few things that I had read. And so I asked an employee to help me pick out what would be the best breed uh, for Texas, given that it gets up to 110, and potentially the healthiest breed and the best layers. So he pointed out some chickens that he said would be perfect for what I needed, and I got them home, and I put them in the heat lamp in the tub that we purchased and got all their little pretty bedding and their new feeder and water, and I would say probably a week and a half, two weeks into having them, I noticed that they were getting huge. And I thought, okay, what I read online, I don't think that they're supposed to be this big. So did I buy some type of super breed or um, are they radioactive chickens? I really didn't know what was going on. And I am part of a few homesteader groups on Facebook that definitely help with information and support. And I posted a picture of me holding the chick, and I had named him lovingly uh, Cotton-Headed Ninny Muggins. If you're an elf fan, Will Ferrell, you'll get that reference. And immediately people were commenting saying, "Um, that's not a layer, that's a meat bird. Didn't even dawn on me that there was such a thing as meat birds. Obviously, I eat them, but again, this is how new I was to chickens. Um, And they said that they only live typically seven or eight weeks um, because they grow so quickly. They have heart problems and health problems, and they're specifically raised for meat, not for laying eggs, which traumatized me because I thought, there's no way in seven weeks I'm going to be able to cull um, these chickens. Like I just, I knew myself well enough to know that there was no way, especially with my first round of chicks raising them to adulthood. So There was quite a few people once I voiced that concern that are on the homesteading site that said, you know, I do this all the time and we raise meat birds. And I just told one of them basically first come first served, come get these chicks because I had already raised them for two weeks and taken care of them. And there was no way I was going to be able to put them down. So thankfully somebody came and got them and I just kind of closed that chapter of those chicks and it's just part of farming. So then the second that I went to get get at Tractor Supply, I did a little bit of research prior to going as far as, you know, the hardiest stock and breeds and, um, again, the best egg layers. And for the most part, there was a couple of breeds that kept popping up. And I know that there are breeds, particularly when they get chicks in at Tractor Supply and Orschlands and other feed stores, that most people want to buy and they go pretty quick. I think the Easter Eggers, the Americanas, um, those tend to go pretty quick. I don't even know if they get the Silkies or the Polish in, which if these are all new breeds to you or all new to you, I definitely recommend you getting online and looking them up. So many of them are so ugly that they're cute or just look like something out of a sci-fi movie. So, I decided on, they're, I think they're kind of like a crossbreed. They're called a red sex link and a black sex link. And basically, I think they're like a Rhode Island red crossed with another breed of chicken. In my experience, having them, I've had them almost two years, um, five remaining. I would have had all six had it not been for a farm dog incident, um, unfortunately. So I've had all five and... 
again, this is something that I'm learning. I said something online about my chickens being two years old. Somebody on the homesteading site commented and said, you realize that typically after a year and a half, two years, they stop laying eggs. Again, information I probably should have known before I dove into this head first. So now I'm left with a position of, do I let the chickens retire here? Um, or because they are taking up space in the coop that we built to have farm fresh eggs, what are the decisions here? So that's where I'm at right now with them. I do think that it's going to be time to get and raise some more chicks soon. The reasoning behind that is these chickens that I have now are pretty much already trained, like they know the routine. And for the most part, as they age, they'll kind of coop at night themselves. And that's something we're going to touch on as far as free range or keeping in the coop. But I feel like if I were to get some chicks before anything happened to the chickens that I currently have on the farm, that they kind of will follow their lead and maybe I don't have to spend as much time training them. The way that I trained the chickens that I have now, I think they, you know, once it starts to turn dusk, they naturally want to coop at night. And so now they do that on the, on their, their own. They go to coop when um, the sun starts to go down. But initially, when I transferred them from the heat lamp uh, trough to the coop, I actually left them in the coop, I'd say, I think about a week or two before opening the door and letting them free range. And even then, I had a little fence set up so that they couldn't go too far. And then in the evenings, I would put them back in the coop and give them mealworms. And that just kind of became the process. And now, I think that took about a month or two. And now after that, they come when called and they go to the coop in the evenings. The coop itself, so something that I had to decide on before we built it is whether or not I wanted to free range. And there are risks involved with free ranging. And a lot of times they'll get picked off relatively quickly with predators and hawks. And there's not really, you can do some things as far as if you have a farm dog that won't attack your chickens. Um, and a lot of times people will get geese and make sure that they have roosters and certain protectors of the flock. Again, I didn't want a rooster because I didn't want to raise chickens and I didn't want to deal with the aggression and, you know, having one chase me down <laughs> every single day. Not all of them do that, but a lot of them do. I also did not care for the crowing in the morning. So we just decided against that. Um, but I chose to free range. And so when we built our coop, I didn't build it as large as what's needed if you're somebody who will not let your chickens free range. And that's just going to be dependent on choice, where you live, if you want the risk. Keeping in mind that even when they coop at night, if you don't have the coop set up predator proof, then absolutely you can get all types of predators in there in the evening. And that tends to be how a lot of people lose their flock. When chickens go to roost at night, it's almost kind of like a trance that they're in. So they're not really quick to move or run or be aware that a predator is in there coming after them. Um, I used not chicken wire. I used more of a very small but very thick um, metal, and the name is escaping me right now, but we buried that actually into the ground and then I put concrete on top of it. And I made sure that there were no spaces between the door 
and the roof and any of those that we built that predators could get in, raccoons included, because they are very, very, very smart animals. So that's another reason I think that we still have the five. Kind of a basic rule of thumb for cooping your chickens is four square feet in the coop per chicken. And then if you're going to build an additional run for them to not have to stay in the coop all day, I believe it's about 10 square feet per chicken in the run, just so they can um, have access to the grass and the dirt and scratch and dust bath. And all of those things are really important to the physical and mental health of your chickens. I know a lot of people say they're not very smart, and I'll agree for the most part they aren't. Um, but there is some intelligence and obviously they are a bird. So they like to have kind of that open area. And that's where I landed on free range. I felt like if a predator got to them, it's kind of the circle of life. And at least, um, they were extremely happy being free range before that happened. Again, I live on a farm where it's easier for me to make that choice where if you're somebody in town or you are heavily wooded area where the predators just are going to pick them off early, then I completely agree with cooping and having a run or whatever works best for you and your farm. I also went back and forth on laying boxes. And here's where it's funny. And again, this is something that I've learned after building the coop and talking to other homesteaders is I have five laying hens and... <laughs> I put in three nesting boxes for them to lay their eggs and they fight over the exact same one. So if one is in there laying an egg and the other one comes in the coop halfway through the day to lay her egg and there's another chicken there, she literally squawks at the hen that's in the laying box to move so that she can then lay her egg. So I would say maybe... 2% of the time does any chicken lay their eggs in one of the other two nesting boxes, which is hilarious. I still think we made the right choice to give them that access just in case because there's no way to have known that that's what would have happened. Um, also really important in your coop is going to be some roosting bars. There's difference of opinion on how high that needs to be. I will say the higher you can get it, the better for them. That tends to be how they like to roost. So I make sure that I have that in there. Um, we built their coop up off the ground in their, um, in their run. And so we made, you know, a tiny little ramp for them to go up and down, but that ramp can also be shut. So if I need to completely close them off in the coop with the nesting boxes, for whatever reason, I can. Uh, so we have the laying boxes, the nesting boxes, the roost, and then that ramp. And we did put a metal roof over the coop and also when the wind is extremely heavy and when the sun is beaming down, that's something else to consider. If you're going to coop your chickens and not free range or if you're going out of town, if they don't have access to shade, particularly if you live somewhere like Texas where it's you know 110 degrees parts of the summer, they absolutely have to have access to shade and they absolutely have to have access to clean drinking water. That being said, I can give them clean water all day long, but when they're free range, they just drink any stagnant water they can find. Not necessarily the best for them, but what are you going to do? Um, during the summers, I make sure that I have 
frozen fruits readily available for them. So when they get too hot, I will put ice cubes in their water. I will also throw them frozen fruit, which tends to help cool them down. They're pretty good at doing that themselves. Same throughout the winter. When it gets occasionally below freezing here or in the teens, I used to freak out and put a heat, try to consider putting a heat lamp in their coop, but that causes um, major fire risk and you can do research on that and some people still do it and that is absolutely their choice. But I have found in my research and with this particular breed that I have that their feathers keep them warm and in their coop, I have two cross ventilation slides that also have um, the wire on them. Just again, if I've shut them up in the coop to have them be them safe, keep them safe. When it gets extremely cold, I don't ever close those completely off because they absolutely need some ventilation. But I do, I have them on a slide. So I close them most of the way and still leaving air for them to breathe in that cross ventilation. So that's those are things to consider for the heat and the cold and something to research depending on where you live. If you live somewhere that is below freezing a lot of the time, that may be something that you need to consider as far as heating them up. Let's see, what else? So food, I feed a laying feed that's I believe it's about 16% and then I also feed cracked corn and you can do scratch gains, grains as well. In the summer I tend to back off of the corn and scratch gains grains because that corn actually for whatever reason it heats up their body temperature so it's great to give in the winter in conjunction with the chicken feed but I don't tend to give as much in the summer. They absolutely love mealworms, so I use that when they come at night to coop. I still throw a handful of mealworms in their coop. They love it. It's a great source of protein. Um, I don't think that my chickens necessarily need it all the time because they have access to worms and bugs and all of that when free-ranging. But if you don't free-range, that's something that may be um, great to constantly give them. I do give them fruit and certain vegetables. In my research, I found that citrus fruits um, aren't the best for them. I also don't give them certain veggies such as like celery because any of those things that are not easily pecked apart can get stuck in their gullet and that can cause issues as well. I don't give them a whole lot of carbohydrates, breads, those sort of thing, because that fills them up and I would prefer them to eat the bugs, crickets, worms, whatever they're going to eat. And basically as a rule of thumb, I don't ever feed them anything that I wouldn't eat. So if the fruit and veggies go bad in your fridge, I know a lot of people that will feed them to the chickens to not be wasteful, but their body can't process the mold and rancid stuff any better than your body can for the most part. So I try to keep that um, away from them. I don't give that to them. And I will occasionally, and I know it's so funny, I laughed at this when somebody first told me to do it. Um, I will scramble their eggs, especially when we are overrun with them, and give them to the chickens. They go nuts. They love it. 
Same thing with chicken. If I have boiled chicken that I've made that I know is about to go bad, that my family's not going to consume, I will feed that to them as well. Um, something else that I feed them is when I make homemade uh, bone broth from chicken bones, the way that I make it in the instant pot, which I will go over that at a later date, it really softens the bones. And so if they're super soft and brittle, I will throw those with other things that were in the bone broth that I strain out. They absolutely love that as well. You can ferment their feed. I haven't done that, but that's something to consider and research if that's something that you're interested in doing. I've been told that that extends um, the feed bag, meaning you have more food for a longer period of time and it's very healthy for the chickens. Some people will also crush up their shells and give them to them. Um, I typically, particularly in the beginning when they were being cooped, they need tiny little stones or rocks that they get when they free range that kind of clears out their gullet for them. They sell those at any feed store. So if your chickens are not going to free range, that's also something to consider. They also sell um, small pieces of oyster shells that they sometimes need. There's all different versions and variations of giving them the nutrients, the food, and the health benefits of everything that they need to stay healthy. And I think a lot of that is dependent on the farmer and the chicken raiser, the chicken breeds themselves, and what they may need based on where you live. Again, temperatures, what they have access to, and what they don't. And for the most part, that's it. There are a few health issues that come up, like something I recommend having on hand is called blue coat. Um, it actually darkens the skin because occasionally they will peck each other. And typically you will know when one of your hens is sick because they kind of gang up on her. So that may alert you as well. And once they start that attacking on a hen, it pretty much doesn't stop. So Blue coat to coat where they have ripped her feathers out. And then Vetresen is a great product for any um, minor scratches or cuts that they may get. Something else that happens pretty common in free range chickens is called bumblefoot. They can get tiny little cuts on their feet just like us. And obviously they're walking around in all kinds of dirt and bacteria that gets up in the foot. I actually took one of my $2 tractor supply chickens to the vet the first time I saw the bumblefoot, um, and that was an $80 bill, and thank God my husband loves me and supports my crazy decisions to care for our animals, but that was a lesson learned because you can also treat that at home. It's not necessarily the most appetizing thing to do in the world, but if you care for the health of your chickens or you're worried about them, then that is an option. YouTube is absolutely, as well as blogs, a great um, way to learn and to experience from other people's trial and errors and successes. I will say that the decisions that I've made for my hens, I get typically at least one egg a day per hen. Occasionally I'll get two. So that to me kind of is a gauge as to how well I'm caring for them, how well they're tolerating their environment. Um, certain things to look for, I know, especially like with their combs and their fur and feathers, 
Um, mine do take dust baths, and sometimes it's the dust that comes from the soot that comes from the fireplace that I'll dump out there, obviously making sure that it's not hot, because again, they're not the smartest. And they'll also dig up um, areas of loose dirt, and you'll see them flopping around. The first time this happened with my hens, I thought, oh my gosh, their wing is broken, <laughs> their leg is broken. Why are they laying on their side? And basically, they're covering themselves with that dirt, with that dust, it helps clean them. It helps protect them from mites and that sort of thing. That's also something to keep in mind. Um, a lot of times because of how layered their feathers are, particularly around their rear end, they can get mite infestations. And that's something that you would have to treat. Many times it goes unnoticed for a long time just because, again, unless you're picking every single hen up and checking them all the time, you may not know that that's happening. Um, sometimes they just perish in my research that you may never really know what happens. Oftentimes it's a heart attack or underlying health issue that you didn't even know and there's no way you could have known was there. Be prepared in the event of that, that in order to prevent animals from suffering, you're going to have to find a way to be okay with calling the animal or knowing somebody that can do it for you just so they don't suffer and what you obviously would do with them from that point uh, as far as burial, cremation, whatever, you know, burn pile um, choices that you want to make. So those are things that definitely need to be considered, especially if you were a city girl like me who babies all of your animals. There's certain things that you have to come to terms with and be okay with. Um, I would say that that's just about it as far as the lessons that I've learned along the way. I will um, do a YouTube video and blog post. I am going to order from a hatchery a few different breeds of hens to see if they work as well as my cross um, red and black sex links. They have been the healthiest um, in my research and experience. They're actually a very good family chicken. My daughter can pick them up. She can pet them. She can chase them, which I often tell her not to. Um, and they just, they've been a great experience for us and for my daughter. Sure, there's some hard times. And like I said, when it's 110, sometimes it's frustrating to have to go out there and constantly make sure that they are cooled off and that they're not standing in direct sun. <laughs> Um, if you're running a huge flock, a lot of these things may not uh, pertain to you or correlate in the way that you want to run your flock, especially for people that sell their eggs. This is just what has worked for us and what will hopefully continue to work for, uh, for us. Something um, that I meant to mention on the coop, obviously the nesting boxes, it would be most beneficial for you to have them somewhere easily accessible with maybe a flip top lid. And we did that as well, just so I don't have to go into the coop to collect the eggs. And I will post a blog post and a YouTube video with the coop in the pictures and kind of explaining how we built that just so you can have a visual as well. If there's anything that you feel like I need to cover or that you recommend adding to my routine with my hens, I'm always all ears. I love to learn and I love to constantly improve 
on our hobby farm with our animals. I hope that this covered a lot of information that maybe you had questions about today. And don't hesitate to reach out. I hope that I've helped some of you. Thanks so much for listening. I can't wait to catch you on the next one. And you guys have an amazing week.